Welcome to Equine Assisted World. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times bestselling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Here on Equine Assisted World, we look at the cutting edge and the best practices currently being developed and established in the equine assisted field. This can be psychological, this can be neuropsych, this can be physical, this can be all of the conditions that human beings have that these lovely equines, these beautiful horses that we work with, help us with. Thank you for being part of the adventure and we hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome back to Equine Assisted World. Today we've got someone amazing, of course, everyone on here is always amazing. We've got Dr. Rebecca Bailey. The Polyvagal Equine Institute is something new, it's something cutting edge. Dr. Bailey is at the helm. And there's a lot of questions we want to ask her. What, what is polyvagal? What's this poly word? What's this vagal word? How can it help us? What do we need to learn from this? What, you know, how can this help us in our practice? I think a lot of us are familiar with the idea of a sympathetic and a parasympathetic nervous system, an autonomic nervous system. And these are words that have been creeping in over the years. And now suddenly there's this polyvagal thing. And what does this mean? And oh my gosh, is this another thing that I have to get right or wrong or yeah, et cetera. So, so, so Dr. Bailey's going to help us to understand this and to bring in how this can help us in our practices. I don't want to take away from Dr. Bailey's knowledge of herself. So I'm not going to do too much of a bio. However, Dr. Bailey comes from a long tradition with horses and of course with mental health. She is a East Coast transplant that moved to the West Coast about 35 years ago and has been working in the field of trauma and recovery from trauma and resilience for a number of years, has published books, has been on multiple media shows. You can find her all over the place. You can find her on Diane Sawyer. You can find her on all these things, but it's quite rare that we can engage her one-to-one and get her to really clear up for us. What is this polyvagal thing? How does it help us? And what do we need to know? So Dr. Bailey, thanks for coming on. Welcome. Who are you? First of all, Rupert, I am so stoked to meet you finally after, I think you and I have been plotting. You were certainly ahead of the herd, but, but been plotting in the same pastures for many years. And uh, I've heard over the years that you and I would either meet and endure each other or combust in our connection. So I don't know. Let's see what happens. I am a psychologist who I like to say was raised by a horse. I think my first experience in co-regulation was a little horse named Locket. I grew up back east, as you said, and had two sisters that were very accomplished equestrians. And I was the roly-poly pudding pie hopping around on the horse in the backyard. And here I am all these years later. So in 19, but 1989, I got very into animal assisted therapy and doing it as something and not just the dogs and horses in my life. At the time in my graduate school, I was told after I did a master's thesis, don't tell anybody, you'll discredit yourself. And really cool fact, what I found back then, I didn't even realize what I'd found was a variable with women that had horses. It was an N of 70 
um, which means a group of 70 versus 70 women that didn't have animals at all. And what I found was a very, very high leadership criteria, meaning that they had the ability to do what we call military leadership. And this isn't the bang, bang, shoot them up leadership. This is the ability to lead from within and next to. Now, ironically, Linda Kahanov wrote about this many years later in her Power of the Herd book. So what I would, had discovered with this particular master's thesis, I did that we who have horses, who are dedicated to understanding and listening to horses, have this ability to lead and connect with them, which is really at the core of regulation and co-regulation in polyvagal theory. So take me back, guide me back, focus me back in, sir, as I go off into the... I got, I got like five questions that I just wrote down for myself there. I'm going to come back to them in a minute. Quick and easy one. What do you do? That's a very good question. I am a psychologist who has been doing extreme, I don't like to use the word trauma because everybody says that. So I like to say extreme complex cases for about the last 30 years. Now I'm the co-director of the Polyvagal Equine Institute with my colleagues, Margie McDonald and JC Dugard, who was a young woman abducted, held captive, of which the horses brought back into life, into regular life. So I'm a psychologist, I'm an educator, I'm a trainer, and I'm a goofball. Me too. <laughs> uh, the goofball bit, not the other bits. Okay, so what is the Polyvagal Equine Institute? So the Polyvagal Equine Institute is our attempts and desire to re maybe put a different lens on equine treatment. And I know we're supposed to say equine something, something, and I always get it wrong being a dyslexic. So I just call it equine interventions, equine whatever. I've never figured this out for many years. But what we're, we're trying to do and what we are doing is training people for professional awareness and understanding of not only themselves, their clients, but the incredible colleagues that are these incredible horses that they work with. So for many years, I've been doing interventions with the equine work. I've morphed like everybody else. But what was really missing to me was the understanding of the dance between nervous systems. Okay. People understand this, as we were discussing earlier, that do classical dressage. They understand that piece. But what was missing in equine therapy was when you're on the ground, this connection between the nervous systems, what you bring in, what the horse brings in, and what the client brings in. So this was part of what we said we really want to push the f field a little bit forward in use in in teaching other people about this modality, and then also enhancing other treatment modalities. For example, and I can say it to you because you're you, I've had a few people that have gone through psychedelic treatment and have come here after they've had, months after they've had their journeys. And surprise it, there are people that would laugh who've known me all these years, particularly with my old Grateful Dead experience. We ground them post those experiences and help them maybe process and understand that experience in a different way, if that makes sense. So our, program, our trainings also enhance other treatment modalities. What was your Grateful Dead experience? Well, I was the maid of honor to the bass player and his wife. My ex-husband worked for them and the bass player named two children after 
my ex-husband and my brother-in-law. And then my horse, Dr. Velcro, who many people know, black and white horse, was given to me by Billy Kreutzman, the drummer's wife. And so I had long, the 80s were one big blur of Grateful Dead concerts. And then I got my act together at the end of the 80s and went to grad school. All right. So there's something I'd like to to just go there. I I didn't have this in my notes, but this is interesting (laughs) to me because not every listener will be familiar with the Grateful Dead. So we have, you know, listeners all over the world. So I'll just quickly fill in. The Grateful Dead were, some would even say are, the sort of seminal... 1960s counterculture, but of course they went over decades. But you could argue that they were really the 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 the, the, the spokespeople of the counterculture, certainly within the USA. And they came out of the West Coast with a type of psychedelic music and exploration, and people associated them with drugs. People associated them with hippie stuff. Correctly. And of course, incorrectly, and that they were also purveyors of a certain kind of Americana. If you really break the music down, a lot of it is actually Celtic with sort of African roots, which one could say is Americana, but they took it to a, a level of sort of consciousness that attracted bazillions of people. And so the Grateful Dead concerts were like a, a festival that was sort of constantly going around America over, over many, many decades. And it's interesting how many people one meets who have gone on to all sorts of interesting things, who had a sort of seminal shamanic, one could say, experience or number of experiences through this particular part of the cult- counterculture. And those who know me know that, you know, I've I've had a lot of experiences in the shamanic, and I would say that a Grateful Dead concert, what people called a dead show, was a very viable shamanic experience, healing experience, (laughs) formative experience within the confines of our post-World War II, post-witch burning, post-Auschwitz, post-colonialism and everything else, culture. So it's, it's very interesting to me that you bring up the fact that you had a, a, a grounding in this. How do you feel, what do you feel, before we go back to Polyvagler, what, what do you feel that your participation in this aspect of the Western counterculture did for you within the horse and equine assisted world to sort of open your mind and heart to the greater possibilities of what we could do. What, what, what's so cool. No wonder people were saying we can bust because absolutely. I When I met and kind of fell into the connection with all those guys, it was in about 16 or 17, a very repressed Boston society and came into this place where was asked to see the whole world from a different perception, getting to know Jerry Garcia well, being part of that connection learned a lot about, again, again, how leadership is about leading within and about and part of the collective conscience. And people like, you know, like you say, it's funny, somebody yesterday was saying, oh, but we're using psychedelia now in a different way. It's not a social thing like that. And I'm like, you don't get it. You don't get it. These people, there, there was, Joseph Campbell used to come to the concerts. I mean, there was this understanding of the collective consciousness and our responsibility to each other. 
So God, there's so many things Rupert, we could go to. I mean, for example, my great, 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 great grandmother was hung as a witch in Salem. And so I, even in all of this sort of shamanic releasing of intergenerational trauma, I think what all of this, that all connected me to was an embracement of the passion and all that's me. And I know if it wasn't for my connection with those guys and the band and all those people, I would never have felt that. I would you never. You conjured some names there for people again. Jerry Garcia was the band yeah. leader of the Grateful Dead. Yeah. If you don't know who he was, you just do a quick wiki because you could, you could argue that many of the more progressive aspects of our culture emanated through that man. Yeah. Joseph Campbell, just talk to us a little bit about who Joseph Campbell was. Well, jo Joseph Campbell was an amazing, amazing, I think, what would we call him? A Jungian theorist and wrote, what the heck, I'm going to block on the mythologist, name. really, right? He yes, yes, yes. And he really talked about bringing sort of shamanic concepts back, talking about the journeys that we all go on in our life. And mm. and it, he, he broke into a society that weren't counterculture people. Right. He broke into... Dining rooms and living rooms and cocktail parties of academics and academics like yeah. who were saying, you know, who were able to say, sorry, we're able to say, oh my gosh, this makes sense. This isn't dancing in the in the hallways, and it's sort of all melted together into this great big understanding. I keep saying the collective consciousness, and so here we go to polyvagal theory. We were learning about the mix of nervous systems and how we all impact each other and how the collective consciousness is the responsibility of all of us mm -hmm. um, and not going off into any political realm, just saying these, this understanding that my hand affects your hand affects this hand. And so that became the core of the polyvagal work we did with trauma, understanding that it's not the central victim or survivor in front of you. It's this system, the parents, the friends, the you know, law enforcement, the judge, all of this that are impacting the individual system in front of us, all the stuff that herds of horses show us if we sit down and watch. It's really interesting. I, I've had quite a lot of experience with, one could say, wild people. I lived with Bushman hunter-gatherers on and off for quite a while. And one of their central tenets is that if there's any suffering, any sickness, any dilemma within the community, it's always actually a joint responsibility, what you would call collective consciousness. That, and that's why everybody must come together at the transfer. And it could be, gosh, it could be anything from someone's actually got some major health problem to someone's got a psychosis to there's just a, a couple who are arguing a lot and it's disrupting a little bit the harmony of the village. Or it could just be a sort of general washing of the psychic dirty laundry of the whole community just to keep everybody cool. But at its fundamental level, there's this, this acceptance that there is a joint responsibility for the whole thing. And you don't hear this spoken about very often in the West because we have, you know, this myth of the rugged individual and so on and so forth, and that we're all just sort of out there at dog eat dog. But it, it, we, we know that's not really how life is. So talk to me a little bit about how polyvagal theory helps inform us if we're coming out of a Western tradition okay. we're not just, yeah familiar with this whole shamanic thing how does this help us understand and get to grips with all of this so just to go back just because 
Just so, for example, 25 years divorce kind of separated myself from this core of herd of people that had connected, built a different life. My house and barn burns down and the whole community burns. And the leader of the Jerry Garcia's daughter contacts me out of the blue, offers me her house for a month where my and I hadn't seen her. I haven't seen her since I didn't see her after she just said, hey, I heard you were in trouble. So I, the reason I'm saying that is that that just underscores what you're talking about. Like the responsibility, it doesn't mean that I live next to you and check in on you all the time. It doesn't mean anything. It just means that even from afar, I hear your sorrow and I help and I'm there in some way, whatever way I can be. So how does this commit with the whole polyvagal? So the polyvagal studies of Dr. Stephen Porges, who is the sort of the creator, inventor, researcher of polyvagal theory, really looks about how it kind of the way I boil it down really boils down to this very simple aspect that human beings have the strive, have the drive to survive. And everything we do is around the service of survival. And as the vagal pathways evolved over millions and millions of years, this social engagement pathway in what we call the ventral vagal developed. And this social engagement pathway is the core of compassion and curiosity and connection. So how this all fits is to really understand that in our Western view, we've Poppled a little bit in my mind over in therapeutic interventions into, you know, brain stuff. We do bottom down, meaning from the brain down to the body. Well, what polyvagal theory says, and at least from my interpretation, and I really do believe it's a growing field where, you know, we've got to be very careful to not say you're wrong and I'm right. But from our perception with the horses, when I say polyvagal, it's the top down, the top the bottom-up learning is at the core of the essence of the work we do, meaning that it's in how we get into our body to feel it in the body and then respond in, in a slow manner or fast, depending on whether we're in a survival state, but in order to then process it. And often we process based on old narratives that have nothing to do with the present moment. So The big uh melt. Okay, so 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 you talk about the body informing the brain, which uh, you know, let's we could we could talk, you know, gut, heart, brain, and so on. There is this thing called the vagus nerve, the wandering nerve. It's the largest nerve in our body. Okay, can you explain to us what the function of this nerve is? And then from that, I'm going to ask you why the word poly. Do we have more than one vagal nerve, or is it that we have multiple effects from this nerve or is it yes. not both? Okay. So what is the vagal nerve and what does it do? Okay. So if you're a cardiologist listening to me, you're going to be rolling your eyes and saying, lady, come on, I'm not having you do heart surgery with me. So I want you to understand that one of the, the areas about the vagal nerve is that it is very multifaceted. It has really important roles in our body. I am not a neurosurgeon, so I'm going to come at it from my simplistic psychologist perspective. For me, the vagal pathways, and yes, there are two vagal nerves, which for a dyslexic, this drives me crazy. Why not call it two nerves? 
But there's one on the left and one on the right that okay. innervate, go through all major organs that are many major organs through our body. Also go up into the styrated nerves in the face, meaning up above those eyes, those nerves right there. I, you can't see it because you're listening, but around the eyes and above on the forehead. And then also they innervate into that inner ear. For me, the most important role of the vagal nerves is assessing what Porges calls a neuroception. Am I safe? Am I not safe? Now, what that, that, that means is in response to a sense of safety or survival, you're going to have different aspects of the body that responds. So for example, in very, very, very old, old evolutionary days, the only way we could respond to threat not we, but our great, our, you know, reptile ancestors was to shut down and save our resources as much as possible. Breathe really slow, feign death, whatever that was. Playing possum, in, basically. Yes. In hope that the predator would go away or whatever that was. So that was the only, only survival stance that we had. Then through evolution, the sympathetic pathways developed fight or flight, get out of there, right? Move, move, whatever that is. And then from there, the ventral vagal pathways. And the ventral vagal pathways are the pathways, it's much more complicated than what I say, so please, I know that. But the ventral vagal pathways are what allows us to socially connect. Now, to be in a regulated stage, regulated state, to be able to sit, have this conversation, to be able to hug each other, mobilize without fear, we have to have ventral vagal oversight. So that's by the word oversight, what does that mean? Pathway needs to be engaged as well. Okay. So that's one of the mis misunderstandings. I do believe it's pretty black and white. Although you know, next week I could be wrong, but I, this is how I operationalize this. So I look at it when that horse you're going along, and the horse sees a rock, and stop, you know, startles. And if you are in the position to calm yourself down, be with the horse, then the horse kind of engages and gets signs of safety from you. And then you go forward or the horse tells you it's safe and you go forward. I have a horse that's terrified of turkeys and I cannot ride her on the train. Because if a turkey goes by, she rears up and paws and I jump off. And it's just, you know, and I some rearing horses I can take. She, she just scares the crap out of me. But one of my friends who's 20 years younger, she goes out bareback with me and a turkey goes and up goes Frisia and up goes Hope and they trot it. You know what I mean? So that's a really good example of the dance between two nervous systems. What is what you're saying then that, that it's, it's individualized? So it's um, individualized. how you respond to that apparent threat and that horse response to that apparent yep. threat creates yep. one equation. Yep. And then with your friend Hope, that creates another equation because of differences in her vagal expression, her vagal well, her ability to maybe you could say her ability to access a, a, a dorsal state of calm for a minute to go to a mobility without fear. So that's that thing that I'm beginning to understand even more. And and one of the, the things today, there was something written, I don't want to say where, but it was by the pros on neuroception, calling it faulty versus not. 
faulty. And I was like, I don't believe it's faulty versus not faulty. I don't think hopes is better than mine. I just think it's different in combination to that horse. And so I think our neuroception should be embraced. And I think that's where the neurodiverse community has rightfully had some criticism to polyvagal theory because it's saying like the way it's been perceived, at least from some of the parents I work with of neurodiverse kids is like, you're like saying everybody's ventral vagal, but that's not comfortable. You know, for me, my home state is sympathetic, period. Surprise, surprise. I'm, I'm a really big social engager. I'm really big on ventral activity, but I personally am the happiest when I've got a little juice, <laughs> you know? But in concert with somebody that I can overwhelm, I have to be careful. Uh, there's a, a couple of things I want to, to, to return to. And okay. You, you've, okay, so just for clarity's sake, there are two vagal nerves or there are two main branches of the same nerve. Two vagal nerves. There is a left and right vagal nerve. Do not ask me why they only call it one, but it, there is. And it okay. starts at the back of the brain stem. So it goes from your upstairs to your downstairs and your downstairs to your upstairs. Yeah, the, ba the back of the neck, bottom of the brain stem, but it innervates these important facial nerves and That's the inner ear. That's my next question. What does innervate mean? means it connects in with. Connects in with the, the heart, connects in. Actually, interestingly enough, it connects it to the nerves that turn your shoulder too, which is, you know, when you're feeling a whole lot of stress mm -hmm. and you're like, is that? Well, that's also the vagal pathways. So are you saying that innovation means that the, that nerve, the vagal nerve, or both the vagal nerves are receive, innovate means it receives information from other Or it, it connects into, and remember to just, the neurons and neurotransmitters, all this stuff is at play too. It's not just this, you know, not just the nerve itself. It's the neurotransmitters and the vagal, the ventral vagal are myelinated. And what we know about myelination, and please I'll stumble over my words, we know that the messages in myelin and the myelin pathways are quicker, are received quicker than in other parts of the body. Is myelination just, the sheaths of the nerves? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, so the plastic covering over the wires, how good yes. that is or how not good that is. And how quickly it moves. But in the dorsal area, it's not myelinated. Uh, okay. So you're saying that the ventral vagal nerve is myelinated, meaning it has, it has some insulation. Call it the ventral vagal pathways instead of nerve. Just remember it's one because the wanderer, as you said, it's the longest of the cranial nerves that wanders through all. So I call it pathways. They may not be right, but it helps my little brain. Okay. Just, just, but I'm, I'm helping my little brain here too. Okay. So okay, we've got sorry. one, the ventral one, i.e. The, the, the safe place one, that's myelinated, meaning it's got a sheath on it. It's got, it's, it's got some insulation. But the dorsal one, which is connected to our, collapse state, play possum state are let's like just this. appease or go with whatever we need to go through to get out of the situation if we can't fight or flee is raw. It doesn't have an insulation thing around it. It would that be at least that's the understanding, yes. And that's that rest and digest. And then the sympathetic doesn't either. At least that is my understanding at this point in time. Right. Now what's fascinating is a conversation I had with Porges couple of weeks ago on one of our barn chats through PVI, we talked to him about how some early research shows, and I don't, I, I got to clarify this for you, that 
predators have less ventral pathways than prey. I believe, and now don't quote me yet because I got to get that clear and I'll send you the answer. But it's just interesting. There is a difference between the ventral pathways between predator and prey, which makes sense, right? Because herds have to connect together for safety, which would make sense that they would need a little bit more of the ventral. But I'm going to please, I don't, I always well, this, do this, this. This raises interesting questions because, for example, humans, we know we're not apex predators. We're somewhere in the middle. We're, we're, we're yeah. not armored. We don't have big teeth. We're not strong like the chimpanzees. We don't have, some of us have a lot of hair, but yeah, mostly not. And we're slow. We're bipedal. So, but we have this big brain. So we get our thing through strategy, which might make us like half what a herd would need of herbivores and half what an apex predator, like a lion or a, or, or, or a tiger, which are, but, but then you also get these predators that are super social, like wolves, lions versus tigers. So presumably there must be some sort of a spectrum or continuum. And I, I presume in evolution, maybe you can, uh, for example, I've read that humans, this is a really interesting theory that humans, when they came down from the trees, emulated other mid level predators that were just a little bit above them which is hyenas and we began to behave a little bit like them. And we found that that actually served us quite well because we couldn't really behave like lions. We couldn't really behave like tigers because we didn't have that kind of maximum superpower thing. I don't know if that's true or not, but what I do know is that wolves, hyenas, and to some degree lions have a very, have a mammalian caregiving system that's based an awful lot on affection and interaction that evolves into strategies when they hunt a bit like us yep. but things like tigers for example don't seem to or polar bears or you know th th things that are more sort of so i guess the question then is if you're dealing predators to prey us to a horse we're the predator of the horse the horse is always a little bit skeptical of us quite rightly or if you are a therapist to or, or person dealing with someone who's gone through an awful lot of trauma they have you know quite rightfully a little bit skeptical are we then this is a question are we then caught in a interesting movable equation constantly between this dorsal vagal effect this parasympathetic nervous system am i safe am i not safe this ventral vagal thing saying if I am safe, can I strategize with you and make a plan with you and team up with you and ally with you? Or do I need to protect myself from you? And this is an ever-changing landscape. Is that sort of what we're dealing with? Like, cool. I love the way you articulate it. I've actually got almost goosebumps because I've never really, that's why the combustion, I've never really heard anyone kind of articulated in the way that when I stand back, I look at the world and maybe it's that shamanic stuff we did, but Absolutely. So you're talking about the animals that you're talking, the mammals that you're talking about that have this social connection. You're talking about the ability to co-regulate, the ability to be co-regulated by another. And we get it all screwed up in this, I think, often where we think regulation comes before co-regulation. Uh-uh. Co-regulation comes first, the ability to be soothed by another. And we absolutely have this bizarre dance 
with humans and horses, which is one of the things with polyvagal equine, not to toot our own horn, but really to pay attention to the choice of the horse within the equation. And the protection of the horse as well, the safety of the horse, the safety of the human, and paying attention to this no matter what we think and how much we think we understand everything that they're thinking and blah, 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 and all these new theories of what's going on. The real thing we can do is get in touch with our own neuroception of am I being co-regulated and am I co-regulated? Okay, I need to ask you, let's define these terms because, again, for a lot of people who are listening, they won't know okay. what is co-regulation. Just what's the black and white? So the best thing I can say with co-regulation is you think about the baby that's crying that comes into the world, whether what other type of animal, mammal it is, and they need something to take care of that they cannot possibly survive on this earth without it. I always use this story, and I hope my son never hears it, but my son was incredibly colicky, and I could not co-regulate that guy. Like there was no ability to co-regulate. You couldn't the only soothe him. Is that what you mean? You couldn't make him feel better, basically. I couldn't make him feel better. Okay. And the only thing that could make him feel better was passing out of tire because he had a real serious stomach problem. And so he didn't necessarily perceive me as this, 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 you know, thing to make him feel better where my daughter instantly, which made me feel like a better parent. But so what I'm trying to say is that co- co-regulation is this ability to kind of help someone feel better. And then there's the other side or connect with somebody else where regulation is this, this insulated piece. Regulation is when you're doing it for yourself. Yes. Yes. And that's important. And that's what's important about some of the yoga and all of these things. But unless we learn to co-regulate, we're not doing what you and I were doing earlier, which is understanding the social consciousness of of being aware of each other's nervous system in the world. And once you start using that languaging and acting that way in your life, there's this huge ability to access compassion and curiosity for other people, including the horses. Whenever we lose that compassion and curiosity for other people and the horses, we lose our ability to have them find their own ability to co-regulate. And to me, it's at the core of therapy for severely traumatized people is being curious and authentic. So if we have an ability to co-regulate. Yes. And we develop, is it like a muscle we can exercise? Can Can we develop that to a point where our capacity for empathy, let's say, to put ourselves in the shoes of, without assuming we're in the shoes of, but at least to try to meet that person or that animal halfway, can get more and more developed because we're putting more and more attention there. Would you say that that? Well, I, I believe so. I mean, I, to me, that's what horses taught me. And I think that as long as we don't automatically assume or leave them with the responsibility of having to take care of dysregulated people. I think sometimes that's the thing. Some of the equine orientations drive me a little bit crazy because it's like the poor horse is like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> Not the, you know, that's amorphizing or however you pronounce that word. But but I think I, I do believe that you can learn to be co-regulated and co-regulate and regulate. And 
some of us maybe had to take different journeys than other people to get there. But all of our co-regulation and all of our, it's different. It's individualized. That's the thing that's so important. You know, in in the U.S., there's so much on evidence-based protocols, which is really important. But the fact is, it thwarts authenticity. And so, yes, it's really important that everybody isn't running around saying it is because I say so. It's important that we have some data and understand it. But at the same time, we got to understand that our horses and many of the people, at least that I work with, smell inauthenticity and run to the hills if they because it's dangerous to them. What it's de- not safe. Can you define what you would say is authenticity? I think authenticity is being tr- really true to who you are. For example, I'm a big playful person and I use a sense of humor and it's very natural to me. And if I had to sit here like this and say, well, Rupert, let's talk about, you'd be like, what? Like you might think, you, you part of your cerebral mind might think, wow, she sounds smart. Probably not you, but but it wouldn't be authentic. And I would be longing for a poo joke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you might be like, please. <laughs> Make me feel safe. <laughs> we wouldn't be communicating through our nervous systems together. So even over Zoom, it kind of blows my mind. I get a really sense of who you are. Yeah. And hopefully you get a sense of who I am. And so if you come into my office or my arena or whatever, and I'm trying to act according to the protocol for blah, 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 unless it's really, really authentic to me, it's not, it's, it's going to fall. That's like horseback riding. Unless you authentically are riding with your feel and body, you're always going to look like you're, you're, you know, I don't know what, a plastic person on a horse. <laughs> This, 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 this raises a question for me. Do brains and bo- brain and body mapping? There's so, uh, and again, for, 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 for listeners that might not know what that means, let's say, for example, I'm holding a pen right now because I'm writing down some questions. My brain makes this pen part of my body so that when I put the tip of the ballpoint on the, on the paper, I feel it as if it was part of my body. So therefore I can do it in, in, in a way that's effective. Do you feel that authenticity is a sort of way of the brain body mapping emotion so that the way in which one communicates with another being could be animal, could be human. I mean, obviously we're animals, but you know what I mean, is therefore at its most strategically effective so it would still come back to survival but thriving rather than surviving maybe is it something along those lines authenticity in a way i i think that your body your your neuroception in your body has what, oh, what's neuroception that's what i meant to the neuroception is porges's word for the detection of safety he calls it like the tsa agent are you safe or are you not safe so, um, so not just what are my nerves telling me, it's specifically, am I safe, am I not? Am I safe, am I not safe? And to me, that I do feel like horses embody that peace and present us that a lot. Like, you know, people talk sometimes, I've had people send me stuff about the horse's cerebral cortex being blah, blah, blah size, and therefore they're not as smart. And I'm like, you're not defining intelligence in the way you're yeah, defining it. Yeah. 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 
But so the neuroception, I think the thing is when we're able to match our neuroception, our internal body response in a way with present moment narratives in our brain, we're congruent, right? But so many people are not congruent. So many people have... Explain to me what you mean by congruent. And I may be using it wrong for the, 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 you know, whatever. I may be using it wrong, but from my perception, it means they match. They're together. They meet together. So that, you know, I have, you know, my little chocolate Labrador dog is laying over here. And let's say someone walked in the room who was, I don't know, it's a terrible example. I don't know this thing, but they come in and they see a dog and they're like, again, it's like, okay, there's an incongruence because the dog is sleeping over here and it's very quiet. So you're basing on an old narrative that's making you respond in a way that's based on a past experience. Not appropriate to the current situation. Yes. Now that's where this whole thing that's tweaking my brain, where I've started really teaching that neuroception is neither good nor bad. And now there's this new hearing that I'm hearing, well, it's faulty versus not. I actually think that's problematic. Because I think that the thing that I've found in a lot of the trauma work that I've done with people to let them know that their body was just right. They're here in my office or in my arena with the horses and they survive. Let's celebrate that instead of looking at the faulty versus not faulty. And that's at the basis of the article that I wrote with Stephen Porges and JC Dugard and Dr. Smith on appeasement. This thing that when you're in a relationship with an aggressor, we were trying to get rid of the word Stockholm. Stockholm syndrome was the word that the media put forth as to how people fall in love with the perpetrator. It actually had seven variables. But the one that most people object to, in my mind, that have been in this situation is the love. It's not love, it's survival for most of these people. Every once in a while, somebody will say, no, 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 I actually did, but whatever. So, so we're not going to dismiss it. There's no absolutes. But understanding that the appeasement, which is this ability to be in dorsal absolute fear and then activate the ventral vagal to stay alive, is really a superpower. So, for example, Elizabeth Smart, who's another young woman, I didn't work with her, but she's a good friend, who was held captive for 18 months by a crazy person up in the hills and raped repeatedly. She said, in talking about this, about this subject that she understood that what she did was she thought, if I'm super kind, this person might be kind to me. This person and his sick wife might be kind to me. And she said it was unconscious. But now when I look back at it, I realize that I was from deep terror into this place of I'm going to be kind in the hopes you're kind too. Did it change the course of her life? No. No. Did they stop raping her? No. But she was able to survive and, and actually now is thriving a beautiful life years later. Did it help her to strategize her way out of that situation in some way or other? No, because for many of the people that I know who've been in those extreme, there is seriously no way out. There's yeah. no way out. You ha you, you know, you're living so much in the home. And people talk a lot about hope. That's a whole other podcast. But... but but it is more like surviving in the second, in, in the moment, in the minute. And so that appeasement word, I just love because it is this capacity to have terrible fear in your body and then go up into an engagement and then not, get your, not be wrong about it in treatment. 
not 10 years later be sitting in an office saying, oh, my God, I disassociated and why didn't I fight back? That's not the point. I mean, maybe for some people it is. It could be. Well, there's only any point fighting back if there's a chance that that's going to be successful, right? I mean, anyone I think who's ever been in a in a situation where their life is in danger. I think this happens in all sorts of situations. And for example, in the world of young men, growing up in the type of school that I grew up with in in England, it, it was violent. And it was constantly, constantly, constantly violent. It wasn't just violent a little bit. It was, you, you were beaten by your teachers, you were beaten by the older boys, you were, everything was endorsed that way. And it was a military school and blah, blah, blah. And that was not just my experience. That was the experience of many generations. So this appeasement thing was something that one, I think you, you touched on, one really learned to use, which was that you knew what your chances were. If you could fight back, well, sure. But that, and so sometimes you did. But you were made to feel shame when you didn't. However, there was a wiser part of you that knew that sometimes you had to appease because this bloke was just 28 times bigger than you and there was no way out. And then you were either going to go to hospital, and they did, or you were going to appease in some way. And then you might then be shamed for that later. However, you survived, went on, and could strategize. And what I'm wondering with that, with, with appeasement, and therefore that this is really interesting that you talk about dorsal, i.e. effectively a bit of a, almost a collapsed state, but then that somehow being able to be parlayed into a ventricle state, almost like you can correct me. So I'm asking this, I'm not stating this. Would it be a really interesting, clever way of biology to say, okay, we've evolved from simply reptilian brain, amygdala, fight, flight, freeze, tells the body to create cortisol, act, don't think. Okay, fine. If, 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 if the elephant's exploding out of the bush that's good but if you now see that this is something that's going to go on for a while and 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 this is going to be your life for a bit this is your situation that you can maybe bypass that amygdala and that cortisol which is going to stop you from thinking that's its job and somehow get back to your prefrontal cortex where you can now begin to strategize without the benefit of oxytocin so you know oxy with with horseboy method for example we we rely on oxytocin, rhythmic rocking, motion of the hips to sort of bypass the amygdala. But what's inter- intriguing to me with what you're saying there is that maybe there's a way, is it true, that one could find a way to bypass the amygdala that's not dependent on oxytocin? Because obviously if you're in, under extreme threat, what oxytocin can you find? There's going to be n- no feel-good hormone available to you. Yet somehow your nervous system can sort of override that default. and give you access to your prefrontal cortex so you can make some plan, some reason, some logic and, and, and emotionally regulate, you know, not overreact, not underreact, feel your way through the situation. Is that polyvagal survival sort of at its most functionally extreme or it's another way to look at it though another way to look at it and again this is the simplistic view is that your nervous system takes over because if the brain really clicked in it would go into panic state right so you're you're i mean this is again 
Is this, I mean, Sue Carter, Dr. Porges's wife, is the one that isolated oxytocin and vasopressin, and she'd be really interesting to talk to because she could, she'll take us into the real biology. But from my perspective, when, and I know this is part of polyvagal theory, is that when you're in a sort of dorsal activated state, dysregulated with dorsal or sympathetic, you cannot access the cerebral cortex. Right, you can't get right, yeah. at all. So I would contend that, and I say this to some of my clients, that your body and brain, you know, you're, you're, it's time to tell your brain, I got this in my body, or tell your body, I got this when the brain's hijacking, because I don't think the cerebral cortex comes into play. I think that the horror of the situation where there no is no escape is obvious, and, and your body kind of has to handle it. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Is it something like on the most extreme level, let's say you, the, people have watched wildlife documentaries or you might've you know, been on safari or you might have seen wolves pulling down a, a deer or something yep. like that. And, but the, the obvious one would be like lions pulling down a wildebeest or wild dog pulling down a wildebeest. And I've certainly seen that. And one of the things that one sees is when the animal goes, okay, shit, actually it's, I'm just fucked now. It's like they enter a higher state and they go, all right, fine, fair enough. And it's almost, and it seems that their, their pain and their panic and all of that is overridden and they're in yep. complete detachment and they're sort of looking at what's going on going, all right, well, I guess that's my body, but do what you want. I'm on my way out. It's vaguely sort of, you know, and, and you, you, you can see this happening and certainly people report this. Is that what's going on in the... It is. And what we talk about is, and this is the vagal break going on, your heart rate gets really slow. But what you also do is. Sorry. I hate always explaining that one because I'm so like, I'm so, I have a hard time explaining it with the exception of it's like going down a hill and you put on the brake to slow your heart rate, slow down or slow the bike down. That's what that's what happens in your body. You can slow down. And we talk about a thing called voodoo death, where people can get so scared they can die. And there's been research. We know now that when cats, one of the reasons people get so concerned about bringing cats into the veterinarians is some of them can actually die of fear. And so now, at least in the U.S., they give gabapentin. So your body can react very, very dramatically into this shutdown stage. And there's all sorts of other things going on, but that's the... Right. But but what I was going to say is that years ago, about five years ago, I went and I saw this guy who'd been held captive by Somalian pirates and for like many years. And I wish I had his name or 985 days. And it was so cool because at the time, everybody was talking about hope, hope, hope and how hope saves you and all this. And he said, every morning I woke up, if I started thinking about hope, I got so depressed by my circumstance that I would shut down. So I began to wake up every single morning and just try to stay focused in that moment. And I really like that. See, that's what I heard from these other people. See, I think there's a huge difference between being held captive, being restricted, your body restricted. I think there's a difference in the trauma, the way your body interprets trauma. And I think it's also different with horses. The horses that are 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 broke through the old styles they're i mean my horses we have a, a herd of like 14 they're not all mine but they're a little feisty little 
boogers. You know, they got their own personalities and you can see it. Even people that don't know horses can see it with them. And they have been from very early on been gentle in the, you know, it's been in, you know, they just, it's, they're different and you see them differently. And I do think there's this huge difference between being like you in that boarding school If you had sat there and if your brain had been allowed to say, Rupert, this is messed up. You could get killed at any point. You know, you could go in that hospital. If you'd really embraced that, you could have been really scared and gone into a close disassociative shutdown. But instead, your body said, I got you, dude. We got this. Right. There was a point where I went into a shutdown and I couldn't get out of bed for about six months. And but what I think happened with that was that that was my body saying this is a way to opt out. If I I think it knew that. And so it opted me out for a bit where I could gain some resilience and then come back. Um, Yeah. Other people who, who sort of went through that, we we were a bit confused at the time of why we all had this experience. But yeah, it's funny when I work with and I've kind of over the years worked with we've all in the field, we all work with very challenging situations. But I have worked with a bunch of unfortunate situations where children have been tied to beds and things right. like that. And maybe it's the people that come to me. But when I begin to work with them here, what I see is the celebration of who they are and how they got through that. Mm. And I do believe not that I am this incredible therapist i think what i do right with them is i help them celebrate the resiliency rather than focus on what wasn't there and the horses do that the horses are like hey you know let me let me nibble at your hair right now i don't care what happened to you last week yeah do, do, do you feel do you feel that horses that were broke in the old style are effectively held captive it's sort of like they're psychically held captive and is that why well, it goes yeah. out in, in the eye? Yeah, I do. And and I was, you know, I even when I first started writing on this subject, I had some people from the marine world write to me about whales and all this stuff and, you know, how they're being. And it really, it starts messing with your brain. I mean, it's really hard. It is really hard. And yes, I do believe that the horses whose quote unquote will has been broken, that they go into sort of this dorsal shutdown. Now, what's interesting, and also working with a friend of mine from Australia, we're looking at a sound protocol for horses to see if we can help that. It's Porges SSP protocol to see if we can help maybe the horses shift out of that total shutdown. But I, th- I believe the best healing in the entire world is heart to heart. I really do. <laughs> or maybe it's vagal to vagal. But, you know, I really, really believe that. And I believe I have a horse here who's head was tied to her leg and she was actually one of the horses that came from one of the guys in the Grateful Dead and it was did not happen with them it happened before they got her and she is the most reactive like you come near her ears go back and she snaps you have to wait and approach her in her space and then she's like she'll do anything for you but she will always she's 36 and looks dynamite and her thing is like do you respect me as you come near me? That's all she asks. It's really wild. And she's taught so many people about boundaries. I want to ask you, I want to go to boundaries actually in a minute. I want to return to the idea of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. There's a lot of confusion here. 
I was very confused for quite a long time. Like, why would they call it sympathetic when it doesn't seem very sympathetic? And parasympathetic, why? Okay, are those two things, let's say sympathetic, fear response, parasympathetic, happy, going about my business, serotonin-y, oxytocin-y, functional, are they part of the vagus nerve or are they something separate that interacts with the vagus nerve? So, so to make you feel better, when anyone asks these questions, I go to horror in my in my system. I'm like, oh my God, I can't get this right. I get confused because the two words drive me crazy. What I do know about the parasympathetic, yes, they are part. And parasympathetic is the rest, digest, the shutdown piece. Sympathetic, I look at more of the fight, flight, the sort of conscious pieces that we have. But yes, they are part of the vagal. The vagal pathways are part of that. I actually prefer to talk about the autonomic nervous system as a whole because then I don't get <laughs> stuck in the parasympathetic. But honestly, when anybody in the audience or something says, Dr. Bannon, could you please explain parasympathetic? I go, oh my God, I'm back in my boarding school, right? You know, and I'm going to get yelled at and have to write parasympathetic 15 times on the chalkboard, you know? <laughs> Until I get the sensory issue of the chalkboard as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cursive. And I can't do cursive because I'm dyslexic. So the O's go on and on and on. And then they slap your little hands and like, forget it. But yes, so it's it's all part of the autonomic nerve. Am I giving you a flashback, Rupert? (laughs) Did you see me holding my head? Yeah. The, 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 The question though, really for me is, it seems that, okay, yes. What I'm liking about what you say is that it's not simplistic. And it's nuanced because we know that that's human life. So say, for example, I've got a thing which I like to do. I really like to cross-country ride. I always have. And I like to, I grew up fox hunting and it's always been my greatest love. And I've smashed myself up a few times. So I know what can happen. And when I'm going in at a fence, I'm definitely in fear. However, overriding that fear is an excitement and a pleasure. So I'm getting sort of a dopamine with cortisol with a little bit of oxytocin if the rhythm is nice of the horse coming in and then oh my god thank god i survived you know as i hit it why am i even doing this to myself and then i look up oh shit and there's the next one coming and then of course at the end of the day i'm like i really want to do that again are you drag hunting or live hunting these days i'm drag hunting and and that happened because ah gosh back in 2005 or six i was bringing a group of Kalahari Bushmen, Khoisan, to the United Nations and the U.S. State Department as part of the work we were doing to help them gain legal access to their legal title to their ancestral land, which they've been illegally evicted from. And I had a whole background with this. And we found ourselves going coast to coast in America. We started in Hollywood with Artists for Amnesty, basically just trying to make as much noise as we could. And then I wanted to stop in the Navajo reservation, the Hopi reservation, because I wanted them to meet indigenous people who had gotten their land back and basically could talk about, okay, well, here are the problems that come when you're successful. And we were camped in Canyon de Chez. I don't, you know, I don't know if you know where that is, but it's the second largest natural canyon in, in the U.S. after obviously the Grand Canyon. But it's, it's, it's in a similar area. It's on the Navajo reservation in Arizona. And it's really, really deep. And if you go down there, you can only access it in most of the 
of the canyon by foot or horseback. There's a little bit you can access at the end by vehicle, but you can't really get in. And there's a very, very traditional life on that valley floor. And we were down there camping and a, and a, and a medicine man showed up and said, oh, I've heard that you guys are here to help sort of get the land back. Would you guys like to do a sweat lodge? And we all went, yeah, absolutely. And we did the sweat lodge, praying for the return of the land. And at the end of that, it's actually 2004, that's right. The, the medicine man said, does anyone else have anything that they want to pray for? And I said, yes, my son just got diagnosed with autism. So we did a round of prayers for that. When we came out of the sweat lodge, he said to me, do you hunt? And I said, I do, but maybe not in a way that you understand. He said, that's not important. He said, I'm just getting it loud and clear from the spirit world that you have to stop. And it's somehow tied up with your son's autism. And that's all I can tell you. And I went, oh shit, of course. Of course, the thing that I love the most is the thing that I have to give up. Of course, of course, that makes perfect sense. Okay, fuck it. Right. Okay, I'll do it. And at the time I was actually, it was part of my job. I was, I was paid, it's a great gig, to go around for the equestrian magazines and hunt with different hunts and write them up. I loved it. And I used to work with the American Masters of Foxhounds Association to do this. And my great friend, Dennis Foss, who might be listening to this. Hey, Dennis, he was always suspicious of me because I'm such a hippie. You know, said, uh, I called him and I told him what had happened. He said, I always knew you would always become an anti-hero, but I knew you were deep down, you know, just an anti and you'd just turn on us and you'd betray us. I'm like, Dennis, it's not that, you know, it, it, it's a completely personal decision, but I, I can't argue with this. My gut tells me it's absolutely true. As I was having this conversation with him, this is in Texas where I used to live. And it, it's not like England where there's a lot of foxes around. There's a lot of coyotes. And coyotes don't tolerate foxes much. So when you see foxes in Texas, you actually notice, you see maybe like one a year, two a year. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sitting on my front porch at night and the light is off the front. And this fox just comes walking straight out of the dark, stands oh. in the porch light, looks at me, goes, and I just hold the phone forward. I said, Dennis, this is what's going on right now while we're having this conversation. So if you think that this is some kind of hippie bullshit, and he goes, well, right, Ruth, maybe, you know, and anyway, so, so, so all I do these days is drag hunt. Yes. Which is, I, I do the simulated type of fox hunt where yeah. we are hunting. Yeah, a yeah, we don't hunt a live it. animal anymore. No. Yeah. We used to, there was a big thing where I grew up in Lincoln, Massachusetts. And the only, I, I went on a few and the last one I did, this is awful. And I, all your listeners are probably like get half of them who've hung up or whatever. They it got a farmer's cat. Ooh, dogs. Not good. And that was really that was sort of like tough. But I had a mayor, my mayor Lockett, who used to the huntmaster, Quincy Adams, old old Boston guy, would actually borrow because she loved to go out so much in the front. Man, she was like she was so that horse was a wonder horse, but that is an amazing story. And we, we, you and I should swap some stories because I got a couple that I'm not going to go into now that are like, like, where does that come from? You know, that whole thing of whatever it is. I pretend that I'm not woo-woo all the time. And I like, but there's a part of me that's like, please, the, the fox came out and barked. Yeah, no, as, as my friend, you know, Warwick Schiller. Warwick, uh -huh. And for those who are listeners who don't know Warwick Schiller, go now to Warwick Schiller. Switch off my silly old pocket. No, don't switch off Rebecca. But. Afterwards, go to the Journey On podcast and listen to Warwick Schiller. Yeah, he has a, a really good expression. He says, you can't fight the woo. It's, you it's, know, it's, it's actually really, I mean, 
I was at a Grateful Dead show years ago and I was walking down and I grabbed a friend of mine and I said, watch out. It was backstage. I said, oh my gosh, watch out. It's a turtle. And she leans down. She goes, what are you talking about? It's a piece of, it's a piece of tissue. Like it was a, a paper towel. So we walk a few more ste- steps and I'll be damned. There was a turtle that people had stepped on in the, I, I mean, like, well, it's yeah. kind of like, where did that come from? So you can't fight the woo. But you also have to understand that there's a lot of people. I need to ground myself because if I get too much in the woo, I go flying off in my spaceship and nobody would understand me. Right. But life has a habit of grounding us in the woo, doesn't it? I mean, it's out of the woo, rather, you know, from the woo to the poo. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And that actually brings us back to to, to what I was in the middle of asking you there. This nuanced dance between these different aspects of the vagal and sympathetic the autonomic nervous system as you'd say but with all these different bits hence the word poly themes you know I, i've heard people say oh if, if you're in sympathetic it's bad if you're in you know parasympathetic right. it's good and i'm thinking well when i'm going into that fence i'm i'm dancing in between those things in a way that allows me to respond appropriately to the fence i have to jump where yes I'm, you see, yeah. you see what I'm saying? It, 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 it seems that it's neither bad nor good in that moment. It's bits of both that allow, give me some tools to get the job right. done in, in a way that- With some ventral vagal oversight. And, and it's funny you say, sometimes what I show when I'm trying to explain vagal big, I'll show a really high level jumper go, going into a fence on a horse. And you know they're together. They're just really together. They get mm-hmm. to the base and they release. And then there's this beautiful moment where they reconnect on the other side. And that's what I, it's funny you would say the jump, because I always think of that of how, to, at least to me, that really explains the dance of the nervous system and the dance of two nervous systems. How does that rider give the message to the horse? It's not about dominance. It's about I'm up here, I'm with you, I'm connected, and vice versa. And, and I think that's the nuance. So, yeah, so, so, so we don't have to feel we're getting it right or we're getting it wrong with which bit of the autonomic nervous system are we in this particular moment? I, I don't think so. I think what it is is it's what it means to you in your body. Like what you said, Rupert, you know, you go off to the hunt and you're scared, but you're excited, but you're not. So when I used to do horse shows, if I showed up and I was scared to death, I would do terribly. If I showed up and I was excited, I would do really beautifully. And I, you know, there was like this disconnect between understanding that my body was feeling the same thing. I, I go back, look back at it. and I'm like, oh, that's, you know, the day that I crashed over all the oxers or whatever. So I think that it's what it means to you. And in my dear friend, Deb Dana's words, who is someone that's written a lot on Stephen Porges in a way that people understand is really befriending your nervous system, like making friends with your individual nervous system. And this good, bad, I mean, yes, it is a lot. To be in a dorsal overload all the time can lead to immune problems, sleep problems, digestion problems. So, you know, we got to understand that. But dorsal activity can also be responsible for, as I said earlier, a mobility without fear. Mm-hmm. To be present without fear, you've got to have some dorsal rest and digest going on. So that said, we, we have at Polyvagal a carousel. 
It shows that a horse is going round and round. And when you're regulated, they're going around and nobody notices. When it's dysregulated, it's all like jumpy. I always say at this, in my old age, I would like to be in that cart that doesn't go up and down, that just goes smoothly. But none of us can do that. That's impossible. We all got to, you know, you got to have all these different pieces happening else you're not alive. And I guess that also makes sense if you think of the hunter-gatherer human context. If you're, if you're walking in the bush, chances are there's always something hunting you. Yes. Chances are you're probably hunting something. Chances are you're also looking for wild foods. Chances are if you make the wrong decision about those wild foods, you get the toxic doppelganger and poison your family and that. So you're, you're constant, and there's elephants around and you're a bit worried about drought, but Oh, look, the Mongongo nuts are doing well. Yeah, it, it seems that whatever you're doing in life, that the, the, the human condition, probably the condition of being alive, no matter what species you are, is always seems to be about this dance, this constant dance between fear and respite and happiness and moments of terror. And then that feeling of, oh, I survived it and that's cool and I use my skills and oh, I wonder what the next thing is going to be. And oh, here's a philosophical question. And one is, it, it's always a flux, right? Yeah, it is always a flux. And the thing is, I do believe we have to get way out of our head way more because as we know, there's a, a really international crisis of loneliness in this world. People feel lonely and isolated. We've got our faces in our cell phones. I happen to like my cell phone, but I've got a remind myself to leave it behind when I go out for a day sometimes just because, but we live in this world where we're so lonely. So in so many areas, because people have lost this ability to connect with each other and to honor each other's nervous system. So, you know, you're in the store and the person behind you is being a complete jerk to the teller or whatever that is to the cashier. And, you know, your job is to really regulate yourself enough that maybe you might just co-regulate that guy or girl or woman or they in front of you, whatever it is. But, but you also, you have to remember that that can also impact you as well, right? You can walk out of the store and get in the car and shout at the dog, right? And then you're like, wait a second, it wasn't the dog. I just, this person was screaming at the teller. So just understanding the importance it's in the body. See, I think that's the thing. It's in the body first and then the brain fills in the blanks that's what i think it's like what you know so they talk you know bessel talks about that trauma lives in the body and it took me a really long time i used to say to all and i still do say this sometimes trauma is not what it's not who you are it's what happened to you okay but then actually dr porges and deb at a conversation one time with me said no 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 it lives in your body it's living in there and I still, I understand that and I believe it and I accept it, but I do think until we reduce shame from people and the sense of some sort of a self-responsibility, which is different than what I just said, but until we help people move out of shame, people get stuck in a dorsal place and they get immersed in their story because shame is what holds us down. We know that. We absolutely know that. And I actually don't think horses experience shame. I know my dog sort of does in a funny way, but I don't think horses do that. I think they're in the moment so much that they just go, oh, and then they, their nervous system is so flexible, they go on to the next piece. 
Do you think, do you think that shame is a predator thing? You know, it's interesting. It's so cool. In some ways, is it? Or is it a predator's tool to, and but how would that happen in the, in the animal kingdom? Well, I don't might, know. might it be, let's say you're a wolf pack. Yeah. And one wolf isn't pulling their weight or something like that. And we know that a wolf pack can actually turn on a pack member and annihilate them in, in that sort of a, a situation. Do you think that shame is a tool that predators use? And this is just coming to my mind hearing you say it. Maybe, maybe some listeners might want to chime in on this. There might be some zoologists out there. Yeah. Do, do we think, yeah, is that where it comes from? Because it, it, as you said, you only said the dog. And then it, it went, oh, yeah, but you're right. I think I've never, I don't think horses do feel shame. I think you're right. I, I don't think they do. So why you know, do they feel shame? So yeah. if we look from the herd, and I would love if you get feedback on this, but if you look at it from a herd connection, shame is an isolating thing. You get cast off from the pack. And as a right. result, you don't have the safety that the pack would give you. They're not going to survive. So there right. may be this, you know, I don't know that the, that the dog is like, oh, my God, I feel so bad this happened. The dog's nervous system may be saying, oh, shit, something's about to happen here. You know, I, I don't know. You know, my grandmother grew up in Hawaii and she used to talk about the minor birds, how they would be on opposite branches. And she would watch them like one bird would be all alone and the other birds would squash and squawk and squawk. And sometimes they'd all fly off and other times they'd all go and attack this one bird. And she used to tell me about this thing that she would watch out of her window. And I always thought about that. Like, was this bird being shamed? <laughs> you know, what was going on? It's just, I don't know. You're pulling out all these old, like, thoughts of mine, Rupert, that I, I have no one to talk to about half this stuff. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Well, <laughs> let's explore this line. So if, we, so we're predators, we can, we can accept that. Yeah. If, if we are predators and if we use shame, as a tool to sort of make people pull together as a team, if, if that's, if that's possibly its basic function, yeah, it can, of course, um, unman, it, it, it can do us in as shame so that it, if we're shamed, we can also be made dysfunctional within the team. What do we do about shame? How, how, how do we, how, how do we, how do we dance? out of dysfunction with that. What are your thoughts? It's, just, it's been used to, shame has been used to disempower marginalized populations, right? And so there's a certain investment in using shame in certain cultures and certain, certain groups, right. absolutely. Right. But what we can do clinically, what we can do with the horses is really try to talk about the innate brilliance of the nervous system, the innate, absolute innate brilliance. And by understanding that, and that's why I was so concerned about the word faulty neuroception, because to me, helping people completely understand that this is the response in all its glory. Maybe it could be different in another context, but in that moment, it's what you, you, it was the best you got. And that's okay. And then how do you maybe let yourself learn to receive cues of safety going forward? But it's so interesting because shame has been written about forever, going back to psychoanalytic work. It's, it's so much more toxic than, than 
blame and guilt. And I really believe that it is at the core of many of our mass shooters that there's this shame in casting out of the herd that propels them to want to act in such a way that says, don't you ever forget me. Don't you ever, you know, don't you forget who I am. And it's really sad. I mean, God, that's a whole nother tangent. It's just so sad to me when you look at, I've had the occasion of reading some of the profiles of mass shooters and frequently they're marginalized people that have been pushed out of their community. I am not in any way justifying the action, but is there's this shame piece that you belong over here and we're here. And the acting out is like, don't you forget me. Don't you not know that I'm here? Don't you forget that I was here? Sorry about another tangent there. Right. Or, or, yes. Or, or if you're going to throw me out to the greater predators, then I will become that greater predator. Yes. Yeah. 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 And is, that, is, that, is that what vengeance is? Is that what revenge is? That's interesting. So this uh, is what you and I need to get together and write a book on and talk about is the power of shame and the predatory <laughs> practice because... If we can attack that darn S word again, if people can hear about it and really understand it from a body-based response, maybe we can get it out of this cerebral value judgment, you know? It, because it isn't a moralistic thing. It's, it's a survival thing to want to feel connected. And it is so powerful. You never put a horse alone, right? Hopefully. <laughs> Another time, but I'm just I'm just thinking about back to my time, for example, with the Bushmen. I never heard of anybody being or encountered this, whether re real, you know, in real time or hearing about it. I never heard of anybody being shamed, ostracized. I, I I never, no one, to my knowledge, has was ever cast out and if if these people again feel collective responsibility and, and if these people are the oldest people on the planet therefore the blueprint for what humans actually are that's actually very right. factual that always used to give me a lot of hope and i think being, oh actually maybe we're actually really quite good as a species because these people seem so functional yet we know for sure other cultures do I wonder if, do, do you think that in the wild context of humanity, blame might be used? And I, I'm asking myself this question, like, let's say, I don't know, you didn't pull your weight somehow in the thing and it compromised the other people and they're a bit mad mm -hmm. at you and da, 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 you know, because you jeopardize everybody's safety in that moment. So you've got a chance to kind of then go to the shaman and you go, okay, what do I need to do to access my mojo to you know but other cultures for sure later cultures agricultural cultures that's sort of, we know absolutely have cast people out you hear about you know the accounts of the hundred years war and you know people caught between two armies trying to get into the city with their attacking army behind them and the army behind the walls and just being allowed to let die in between and starve to death in between you know, and, and what would make you not open the gates? What would make you make that decision? And that seems to be a, a, a perhaps a non-authentic way of being a human. Is that the difference in blame and shame? 
is shame a later construct? I think it probably is a later construct and probably if we're really going deep, brought in through paternalistic governmental. I, I don't know that any of the maternalistic, if that's the right word, societies would use shame like that. And so it's, for lack of a better word, it's, 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 I don't know, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. It serves to disempower people, period. And wherever, yeah, go ahead. Well, the question is, is shame a recent thing? I mean, in terms of human history. Let's think about it. Ev evolution history rather than like history, you know, since. I would think so, wouldn't you? I mean, I would be, it would be so interesting to, again, if you have any listener who's like a sociologist and can say, actually, we can see guilt as being, you know, brought in X, Y, Z. But I bet, I bet it is a more function. I bet it's a function. I don't know. That's very interesting. I, I still blame it on the men. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, I mean, it may well be because I mean, with, with, with agriculture, I mean, agriculture can be, um, that's when we see war coming in and that sort of thing. It can be maternal. It can be paternal. We see both, but usually it's the blokes usually. And, and of course, without offending people on maybe I do, but I don't mean to that they, you know, very much Christian values are embedded in, in, in guilt and shame. I mean, well, is guilt the same thing? This is another, is guilt the same thing as shame? I don't think guilt is, see, in my humble opinion, guilt is a motivator for some people. And, and as long as it doesn't go into probably the dorsal, if we're using polyvagal terms, which I love to use because who knows if this is really true, but it sounds so smart, that maybe, maybe shame is a dorsal response, a fear response, a deep fear of being cast out, where guilt has maybe, let's think, possibly some sympathetic juice into it. That there's something I can do about this to to make it different. Where shame, I don't think there's the the structure. The construct is not I can do something to make it different. It's like I've done something terrible and there's no rectifying. Right. There's no redemption. Right. Right. Whereas the the, the guilt one, I do. I really I do sometimes have people come in and say I feel so guilty, and it's like okay, well you feel really guilty. What do we do with that now? Where do you want that to go? I mean, yeah, it's okay to be feel guilty that you know. You yelled at your kid or your husband or your wife or your spouse or whoever. That's, that's fine. But what are you going to do with it? Can you move it into a ventral, into a place where there's compassion and curiosity for yourself and for them? Or are you going to let it go down into an embedded place of, you know, shame that I'm a terrible person? Is ventral forgiveness? I think so, for sure. I have found my life to be so much richer when I look at, see, I look at compassion and curiosity as, so when I'm dealing with someone, whether in the horse arena or wherever, clinically or not, who are so politically different than I am, initially my sympathetic gets bubbling and I, you know, like, and then I just have to really go to curiosity and I can literally feel the shift in my body and I can feel the shift of like, for a second, you know, it doesn't mean that I walk away saying, oh, isn't that wonderful? I, I'm there, right? It's just I go to more compassion for myself, for my response, and for them. And so that sort of goes to forgiveness. I have a funny relationship with forgiveness. I, I go back, I, I'm a teeter-totter on forgiveness sometimes. 
I, I, I don't choose to be in sympathetic with forgiveness and I don't choose to be in dorsal, but I choose to be okay that there are some people I just, you know, I, I don't want to forgive. And that's a conscious choice. That's a cerebral choice, right? Right. And it's not, but there's only two or three people in my life that I'm like that with. And I suppose in one's perfect world, one would, one would get to that point and who knows, maybe one will, but I think, yes everyone can say that maybe not today but hopefully tomorrow <laughs> yeah i was this is one of the questions i had written down here actually which is how can we access kindness and compassion well even when know, just let me just give it but yeah, even sorry. when our sympathetic nervous system is active meaning righteous anger let's say you're having trouble forgiving some somebody because they actually did do you wrong and so therefore you have every, every reason, every, every right to not forgive them, to be, to be angry with them. Yet one knows deep down that if one bears a grudge, it doesn't do oneself any good really at the end of the day, but it can be very, very difficult to not act upon that, etc. So how do we access kindness and compassion, even when our sympathetic nervous system is active like that? What, 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 when we survive trauma, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? So two pieces. I think that the answer, the simple answer is to get back into a regulated state. And that's where like being with the horse and grooming the horse or watching the horses or just being in the presence of, you know, peaceful horses in some ways can help you regulate. But what I was interrupting you about sort of dovetails to what you also just said, which the people I don't forgive, I want them to be shamed. <laughs> so, you know, Miss Miss Dr. Coolio over here saying that, you know, when I when I look at the people in my life that and there's two that I really believe I don't want to ever forgive. I, I don't walk around with a lot of hatred for them, but they have never showed any shame for their action. And it pisses me off. So I think the one way that we get at into compassion is to stay curious and to stay regulated and get out of judgment. Because when we judge, we cannot be compassionate. We just can't be. So I can't be compassionate for these people because I'm judging their action, which is not fair to them really, but so what? Sorry. But but so I, I think the real answer is to just really stay out of judgment and do everything we can. And I think you know, there's certain so social mores that I will always judge and have issues about, like people that hurt little children, period. Sorry, you know, don't work with them, don't want to work with them. Doesn't mean they don't deserve compassion from some. It's just not, I don't have it in me to do it. But I think it's staying curious and compassion in accessing these ventral vagal pathways. And so can, so let's go back to horses. We talk about co-regulation. So if we can be in the, if we can cohere with a nervous system that is regulated so we can be around a horse that's calm, for example, can something as simple as that in a, in an environment with no bad sensory triggers or nothing where we feel a threat, can those two things help us just simply to get into that curiosity, compassion, ventral strategizing social thing, something as simple as I'm, I'm going out into a nice environment. The people around me are okay. This horse is cool. And it's now regulating me. 
I, I really believe that. I also think practicing breathing in a way that's, you know, not complex, sort of a shorter breath in, longer out, being aware of being really present in the moment, smell, especially horses. Although some people say they don't like the smell, but smelling the barn and feeling like the tactile, just feeling. I, I don't believe it's just horses that help the ship. I think it's all of it. Having somebody there with you who makes you feel safe or, you know, or if they're your horses, you know, and you feel comfortable. But yes, I believe that that shift can help your body recognize it as a healthy homeostasis. But you have to remember to carry it with you out of the situation. You know, you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and you're like, get the blank out of the way and you're, you nerve up. Well, I'll even tell you a better example. So I had to get two crowns the other day and it really hurt in my mouth. And I was like really hurting. The Novocaine wasn't working or whatever they give you now. And I suddenly really started riding my horse on my head, not on my head, riding my horse on top of a hill that I love to let him walk up to at his own accord with a loose rein. And he stands there and we look out over the valley. And then when he's ready to move, he moves. And so I put myself in that place. And I just completely enveloped and tried to remember the smell and just being on his back. And it felt so much better. It felt, and I shifted. I shifted internally. Were you in your ventral vagal or were you in your dorsal? Or were you I was sympathetic. I wanted to get the heck out of there. I wanted to run like hell. And then I started getting a little bit like in my head, like this dentist doesn't know what he's doing. Why is it not going out? Later, he explained to me about this particular tooth and why the nerve is hard to, to innervate, to put the medicine in. But so I went into this cerebral thing, like this guy doesn't know what he's doing. I got to get out of here. And then I went to, oh my God, just, just sit here and be in it. It hurts, it hurts, it hurts into sort of a dorsal. And then I went, wait a second, what is the grounding piece in me? So that goes back to your question. If you allow yourself to look for like what Deb called, Deb Dana calls the glimmers, the beautiful things, the things that bring us back into our body, it is oxytocin and vasopressin that somehow is released in our body, we can help our body restore. Now, the problem is there are people that live in situations that are so dire, right? So dire. How do they do that? But the thing is, they do. They find those moments of grounding. And, you know, I talked to somebody who just came out of Ukraine who was talking the experience about being in the middle of this village or this town that was being bombed. And just this thing that they held on to was the vision of it was a, also a hillside. And it was the thing that brought them back in their body when they were out of the fear. So I think we can. But so talk us through when you're doing that, whether it's in the dentist or there in Ukraine, what's going on? in the vagal pathways and system, what's the dance between sympathetic, parasympathetic and so forth? So what I think, what I think and what, you know, I guess the research shows is that what would, many things are happening, neurotransmitters, all of these pieces are happening. But if we go to the simple nervous system piece, the ventral vagal, again, is overseeing everything going on up here, kind of helping you be present in some level, you're, you know, whatever, that's taking you the wrong way. But 
you're either going into the deep fear where the digestion, rest and digest is going offline. Your stomach starts hurting. It doesn't feel good to sit still. You start noticing stomach problems or your sympathetic anxiety. You feel anxious. You want to get out of there. You want to fight. So that's also even something to think about when you're in an argument with a partner or a friend. Like if you can look at it, like my sympathetic is being activated right now. And by the way, I use activated, not triggered, because there's been so many mass shootings that the word triggered activates people in itself. So you're activated, you're in an argument, instead of getting into, up into your brain about it, you go to a part that says, I am just feeling fight or flight right now. I can't problem solve until I walk away and come back. Or the same thing, your stomach hurts so much or you can't sleep in all of these things. When we notice our stomach problems, when we notice digestion, when we notice all these things, it means that something is very much out of balance in our system. Our system needs good ventral oversight, but also all these other pieces to function well. Is there a shamanic ability within the vagal system? Tell me, tell me more what you mean. What I mean is almost like a metaphysical, above, above the physical ability within the relationship between these different parts of the vagal response to say, okay, things are really, really shit right now, or whatever is going on right now, I'm thinking about altered states of consciousness too. I need now an altered state of consciousness. And therefore, there's a, is, is there a wisdom in the body? Is that what shape-shifting is, basically? Is there, is there, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm nodding my head because, yes, I really believe so. When people, yes, I really think so. I think that there is this, like, whether it's magical, mystical, woo, whatever it is, there's this way that your body, your ner autonomic nervous system says, I got to take over here. I got to do this right now. And if your brain is arguing with it, it's just it's so, such a simple way to look at it. But I just, you have to you give in to whatever this thing, this mystical part of your body is, and kind of let it guide you in the moment for survival. So when I have, you know, I was working with somebody the other day who had, God, years of sexual and abuse and trafficked as a child, and they haven't been given this message that they never fought back, and they this happened to them because they were the most likely to have it. They just had this narrative that was really kind of sad. Back to shame. Yeah. Trying to help them see is that you survived. Your nervous system knew that there was nothing you could do, like the boarding school, with these crazy people that were trafficking them to your parents and your parents' best friends. Nothing you could do. It was very interesting because then they were talking about some of the restrictions that they went through. And I've heard this from so many, right now, mostly women, some men, where, you know, they'd have bags put over their heads and this is an activator alert. You know, situations happen where their breath was restricted while they were being sexually assaulted. And what their body did was just go into this fear shutdown. Their brain said, I can't deal with this. That's what I think. I, I can't, if I sit here, I'm going to die of fear. I just got to check out. And to me, I think that's like a superpower. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I have always said to people, and I've been told 
before I worked with these people, I probably would have fought like a cat and gotten myself killed. But what anytime I've said that, everybody says you don't know until it happens to you. You just don't know. And may it never happen to me like that. Yeah, it might be it might be context specific. So maybe the same person, let's say, for example, you're a warrior, male or female, and you access an altered state of consciousness where you you can berserk. Yep. Rip off all your clothes, run into the blades. They will bounce off you because you're in that metaphysical state at that point. Then perhaps you get felled because it wears off that super adrenaline thing. You get taken prisoner. And then a whole other set of responses kick in. But are they actually the same response? Is it the one is, 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 is appropriate to fight? So that's what you use at that particular one. And the other one is appropriate to appeasement. So you use that one at that time. And if you could dance between those two, presumably you might survive that campaign, yep. take that yep. with the home with you and use it for the general wisdom of the community. Say, well, yes, yep. I, I, I was both a fighter and an appeaser. It's yep. all about the context. One could imagine, surely, that it's not just purely personality-driven. It must also be context-driven, right? Context-driven and maybe temperament in some levels. Or, you know, the the if you're highly prone to being super reactive, maybe it's harder or highly prone to high sensate to sounds and all of that. Your ability to regulate under that term, under those conditions, might be harder. You know, I, I think it, it's it's all it is. It's dependent on context, dependent on t temperament, maybe dependent on opportunity. When I first started this crazy, like thinking about all this stuff, I was really into the learned helplessness model. And that was in the early 90s that Martin Seligman, who discredited himself by being part of the committee that helped with Guantanamo Bay torture, which was like amazing and really sad because he's also the daddy of optimism. Very interesting. So early on, I was into his theory of learned helplessness where dogs give up when in a maze and they just lay down and give up. And that was how I would explain many of these people that I was working with. This would be like 80, early 90s until I started really talking to them. And I'd be like, wait a second, you were no, no way you were helpless, <laughs> right? This, you were as far from helpless as anybody I've ever heard. You were in a helpless situation but you prevailed through your ability to manage it in your body. And so that's kind of sort of really shifting things for me. And, and I think horses, I mean, I think horses are, I do think horses, and this is another whole, but I just, I think horses in some ways are appeasers too, because, you know, and I do, I actually, I love to ride and I love my horses. I love being around them on the ground, next to them, watching them, whatever. I actually have a couple that really do like to be ridden. They really do. I mean, it's no question they're, you know, they, but I still think there's an appeasement piece that happens with them, you know, that they're in a situation that there's really no, there's really no escape from it. But if you ride beautifully and correctly and try not to yank on their mouth and hit them in the sides and all these things that we humans sometimes will do, then there can be a mutual connection, but it takes a lot of work.
But isn't that the same as every every relationship? I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, one's relationships in a marriage or one's relationships as child to parent or whatever. Appeasement is part of the puzzle every every day. It's like there's there's always compromises being made and you let that one go. And the more you let go, actually, the smoother things go, even if you it's not fair, but I'm yeah. Right, right. Not that right. important. But one could argue that that's appeasement, right? I mean, I, I remember hearing people talking about masking as if it's a bad thing. Thinking, well, hold on, that's a survival skill, right? I mean, if you if you are hunting a deer and you put on the garb of the deer with the antlers, that's masking, so that you yeah. can mask yourself as the deer, or a masked ball where you take on it or, or, or role play, or that's that's again shamanic or you know shape shifting. Surely these yeah. things aren't all positive or all negative, aren't, aren't they? Aren't they simply the dance that we do yeah. through human relationship to and, and interspecies relationship, I guess, to try to get the best outcome in a given moment? I mean, yeah, I think when I don't, the one that I have issue with is fawning because in the animal kingdom, when an animal fawns at a predator, they get killed. And so fawning is sort of taken legs as a word that I really, I, I bristle at. It's come out of my mouth. I know it has, but I bristle because it really is a, it's also number one, it's a conscious thought where I don't think appeasement is a conscious thought. And number two, it can serve to agitate an aggressor and number three if we start using it too much i hate to think in our courtrooms when the defense attorney says but didn't you fawn if we start giving it air it really it concerns me because i think i think right now it's a very hip word to use and i'm always getting myself in trouble by saying look can we come up with a better word because veterans in you know prisoner wars didn't fawn over their aggressors and we would never say that but it's interesting anyways well, Rupert, I, I it's well it's interesting the word fawn because we talk you know fawn what is it a baby deer right and a baby deer what does a baby deer do it lies down yep. and it hopes and that it finds it right that's all it does it doesn't approach a predator and go hey do you want a beer you know it, right <laughs> what, so why do we use that word well, it's become, it became recently in sort of the trauma community. And I've had some legitimate discussions where some people have said, look, in my society as a woman, that's the only power I'm allowed is to fawn over the man. And, and there's some wow. credence, but how it's different than appeasement is it's a conscious play. I see. And where appeasement is unconscious, it's this unconscious process. You can't con consciously. And I think about that. And I think, is that really true? Well, is it all black and white? No. My gosh. I, 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 I just, the word is so offensive to my nervous system. My new thing is, how does that feel on my nervous system when I say a word? And just because I feel it doesn't mean you're not going to have 100 people sending you notes saying, you know, I love that word, blah, blah, blah. Okay. You know, that's, that's okay, too. It's just a word that I have, as much as Stockholm Syndrome really disturbed me, I get afraid that that's going to be memorialized in the literature. And I just, 
I don't want to go backwards in the way we help people understand their systems and the way that we, you know, I want to go forward, which I think we have an opportunity to people like you out there, people like all these other great people talking about forces is having their own nervous system and all these things like we're moving in the right direction. Let's just not fall back with words like fawning. Okay. Diet. Well, right. No, th th and that brings me to the next the question, which is the future. What's your vision for the Equine Polyvagal Institute? What, what do you want to achieve with this in a perfect world? We are really looking for and hoping to have people taking the courses and understanding it and taking it into their community and creating their programs. So we have things like polyvagal ponies that we work with where it's an eight session, I hate to say it, but protocol designed to help people work with their nervous system before they have to testify in court or things like that. So oh. it's not a therapeutic. So there's all these different things, programs that we're developing in the hopes that people bring them into their community to help people with their nervous system and regulate their nervous system. We're also developing videos that people can use in their offices, in areas where they can't have access to a horse to sort of help them learn some of the lessons we all have by being with the horses. So we're just hoping we grow. We're hoping we teach people to play and have fun. What doesn't maybe come through for me today is I am a big goof, and maybe it did, but I like to laugh. I like to play. I love humor. And just hoping to maybe shine a different perspective on self-awareness and therapeutic interventions. So if it's someone, a very long. If someone was working in the field of equine-assisted interventions, and obviously many of the people listening are, what do you feel is the best value that they could get from interaction with the Equine Polyvagal Institute in whatever way? What, 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 what's going to Go to our website and check it out. And, you know, there's so many new people out there. I got involved with this stuff, as I said, in the early 90s. Polyvagal didn't come to fruition until about 2012. Just the concept. Check into, go to the Polyvagal Equine Institute, see what we're doing, see if it resonates, find your herd with, within this wonderful field of equine therapy or whatever we're going to call it, it's building, find your people. And within that, so if you come to us and you're like, I really like this, I want to take the fundamentals class, this is really cool, I want to go do one of the trainings, do it. I'm doing a training over in somewhere in Belgium and in France, doing Arizona, hopefully Costa Rica, California. So we're digging it to different places. Check it out. See what you think. Maybe you don't like it. Maybe you're you know, into arches or somebody else. We're only interested in people coming that really want to learn, learn, just learn from our perspective right now and bring their perspective. You know, sometimes you have people that wander in and they are just in a different mindset and don't come if it doesn't resonate. <laughs> that sounds really terrible, but you know, I, I am who I am. I'm 62 years old and I'm only more me than I've ever been. And I continue to be more me than ever before. And so, yeah. But let's say it's me. Okay. I'm doing a horse yeah. stuff. So I'm, I'm working with the vagal nerve, you know, so I'm trying to yeah. induce oxytocin, it's traveling up the vagal nerve. It's touching every organ. We're getting, hopefully we're, you know, telling the amygdala, Hey, you don't need to, create that cortisol, let's get that prefrontal cortex going. 
So I'm saying, well, hey, look, I'm, I'm working here with the bagel now, but, but what can I, how can I improve my practice? How can I, what can I learn? What can I I develop? want you to come to our five day in August when you come to Sonoma, California and you come visit your dear friend over at Square Pegs. We have a five day that you're- Joel you guys... Dunlap, by the way, that is everybody. If you haven't listened to her podcast, gotta listen to Joel Dunlap. Yeah. He's one of the best people on the planet. Well, yeah, so, okay, so yeah, what would I, what would you, me and Joel do if we came to you? You, to... you would you would come to our our five day, the three days, the level one, and then level two, and you would learn about how we work with the polyvagal principles with the horses. And it's on the ground. You join a group of people that are somewhat like minded who really want to understand how to incorporate another level of their own self awareness in connection to the work. You could also go online and watch our fundamentals class and understand a little bit more of the fundamentals. But honestly, the best thing to do is come and participate in the class. And what we really want to do, if you're really asking, is have some satellite programs that are doing it. And very much kind of like what you've done with your horse boy is people that really understand. It's very interesting though, Rupert, that you and I again, have run in the same herds without meeting people and people that mean the most in my life, like Joy from Red Barn and new friend of mine, Joelle, are very dear friends of yours and very dear friends of mine, which tells me we're all on the same sphere in a lot of ways. So I challenge you, come for five days with us. I'd love to. I guess what I'm driving at, and I'm sure I will actually, is, is what do you think I or someone else in my shoes could take away to their practice that, okay, we could do your five days. We go away. Right, right. What, 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 how do we improve our practice with this? You get out of your head. You get out of your head. You get out of the amygdala stuff. You get out of all of that. And even you have done that a little bit because that's your orientation, right? Just like if I come to one of your things, I'm going to get something different, but you're going to really get out of your head back into your body in a way that you probably have naturally been doing all these years anyways. And beginning to understand that piece and the nuance of the interaction of the nervous systems. And you're going to be stopped from going back up into the amygdala and all of that piece. You're going to be encouraged to go back into this piece and sort of reposition your perspective. And you may walk away saying, I got it. I got it. I already knew all this. That Then we have a home run because we want you to be empowered of who you already are. I think I think you you answer my question with that phrase. Understand the nuances, the interactions of the nervous systems. Yeah, yeah. That that that's for me that piece of the puzzle. So when when I'm going around, for example, like you, I'm I'm, I'm doing trainings and workshops in different places, and people come, and we say, look, we're not telling you to do anything different. In fact, we know that you're doing an amazing job wherever you are. Here are simply a series of a set of tools, which if you add them to your already awesome thing, simply develops it further. That's all. But we, we know that if you never interacted with us at all, you go on being awesome. It's just, right, we're, I love we're all curious. But what I, what I love about what we just said that is, and that would be the tempting thing for me is like, well, actually, yeah, because I, I do work with the nervous system. I'm deeply interested in the nervous system. So anyone who can shine some light for me on further nuances, I'm in, because that for me is a is a series of tools 
that I know I'm going to be able to use effectively, not just with the, the clients that I'm working with, but also with myself, like as a user manual. Um, also yes. my, my interactions with my own horses in my sport horse and dressage life, not just in my equine assisted life nuances of the interaction to the different nervous systems. I can't imagine that any of us could not benefit from that, right? I, and I love when people come and we learn too, and we get a lot of feedback, which I'm very proud of, where people say, this is one of the very few places that I feel like I can bring my expertise to. And, and you know what I, I mean? To me, that's like so important. Yeah. And yes, you have a personal and professional awareness one that we're also doing at two days which is really fun. People that maybe don't ever want to do equine work. They just want to learn more about themselves. So but the most exciting thing though, is that I'm connecting with amazing, incredible people that I've always meant to connect with, but never did before. Mm. And I'm so honored you had me on this podcast. It's a no brainer. It's a no brainer. I mean, I, I heard about what you're doing. It's like, well, obviously everyone needs to know about this. I mean, it's, 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 it's advancing the field. Some questions you mentioned a couple of people that I think people will be curious about. You mentioned Deb Dana. Can you tell us a little bit about Deb Dana and where people could find out about her and what insights she can give? So Deb Dana is amazing in that she is a very close friend of Dr. Porges and she sort of takes Porges's work and makes it more understanding to lots of people and Lady all you have to terms. do yeah all you have to do is put in deb dana and you'll see her all, all over the place i do notice do know that they are going to be in london at some master series in the end of august and porges will be there with deb and they're just really wonderful to listen to i think bessel will be there or stephen levine so they're all some of these guys are part of the old school that have brought so much to the field. And Deb is very refreshing in that she has just a different style. She does very office-based work, but very similar to something we do as like, do you want me to stand here or here? Where is it the most comfortable in your nervous system? She does that work in her office. So she has a book called Anchored. She has a she just has amazing resources. So just put her in and you'll get more information than Okay, so anchored. Some someone's driving around, and they might want to listen to an audio book. Anchored by Deb Dana. You it's mentioned- good. It, her voice is so soothing, though she can also put you. I mean, I I listen to her on planes, and her voice is very much like this. And so I'm not sure I drive around. I might sit and listen. So, so don't operate heavy machinery. Okay, you mentioned another book, Power of the Herd. That's Linda Kahanif, and Linda Kahanif is a good friend of mine and does Quest International. She and I met and worked together many years ago. We started something called Connection-Focused Therapy, which is has grains of polyvagal very much in it. And she wrote a really neat book called The Power of the Herd. She's written, she also wrote The Tao of Equus and all sorts of books that people know. The Power of the Herd, I actually happen to like because we use it with a polyvagal twist of like looking at leadership characteristics. So it's another one. Power of the Herd's really good. Five roles of the master herder. She's written a lot of great stuff and she's, she's really interesting. This, this brings me to another thing, which you said right at the beginning of, of this conversation. You talked about study that had been done with women who were used to 
working with horses and other animals that it gave them that somehow measurably this Absolutely. leadership quality. Yeah. Would you say that what you guys are doing at Equine Polyvagal Institute might help people access that kind of leadership quality? I think so. You know, I think about, I have a horse now and I've ridden my whole life. I'm not, I'm an accomplished rider, but not a horse professional. Horses kind of spit tobacco at me and say, prove it before they listen. But I've had all sorts of wonderful dressage horses, et cetera. And I recently got a horse about two years ago who was a recovered bucking horse, believe it or not. And I fell in love with his look and just fell in love with him. And if you ask him for the first year, Rupert, we could only go forward two or three steps before he'd buck. And everybody was like, he's got, you know, health problems. And the vet would say, no, he doesn't have health problems. It's taken me two years. He's the horse that I now think of when I ride up on the hill. I had to learn to completely shift my mindset to the power of connection. And so when I ride him, the only thing I'm allowed to do is think one, two, one, two, one, two. I have to be 100% with him, 100% with him. And he would take me to the moon if he could. Period. It's the power of connection, courage. I think it's, no, I think it's curiosity. I had to spend it. I had to spend a whole year trying to be curious about what would help this guy get out of his activated state. But how did you, how did you override your parasympathetic fear of being bucked off? Oh, I just had to keep reminding myself that I wasn't about to go in a horse show. I had to just keep I had to keep reminding myself that I was there for the connection and I over and over and over. And my dear friend, Margie, who helped start the Polyvagal Institute with me, one of the other founders, she said, you know, I, I've ridden for, with her for 43 years. I used to show with her and she said, oh my God, I've waited for 40 years for you to find this horse. <laughs> you know, and he's put together with tobacco, you know, with gum and, you know, and I've had like Hanoverians and Tricators and, you know, third level dressage and but she's like he got he you got it and it's it's not courage because courage implies for me dominance with him it's just listen listen what i mean by courage though is the courage to get on the back of a horse that you know is likely to buck and access that curiosity but you know what's how is that not courage well it's the it's the match of nervous system because think of frisia the one that bucks do with the turkeys? I got no courage with that one, but my nervous system gets too activated by her for whatever reason. Where Summit can do the same thing, not quite as big, and my nervous system knows for some reason how to calm down. So it's a match of nervous system. Maybe it's courage. I don't know. I, I, Is a match of nervous systems what we call chemistry? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Or maybe attunement. How about that? That's a better word. Attunement, being really attuned. To explain, each other. explain what you mean by attunement. That's interesting. So attunement goes way back to psychodynamic, psychoanalytical stuff, where you know your ability to really sense the other person and the other—it's co-regulation at its best. Okay. Attunement is what we used to try to teach people, as in the th- in graduate schools, and yet it was often a one-way attunement. Like you never expected your client to be in tune with you, and I always was like, "Wait a second, I'm in the room too. How <laughs> come I'm not allowed to care?" You know, and so 
I gave some of my, and that was the time I was hanging around with the Grateful Dead. I was doing my grad school work. And so I gave them a run for their money. <laughs> I'd be like, that makes no sense. And honestly, Rupert, when I graduated, true story, the dean of student pulled me aside and said, you're one of the few students we haven't ruined. And you know what I said? I said, because I didn't understand a damn thing you people were talking about. And it's true. I didn't understand what they meant with this thing of like blank screen. It's like, what is that? Yeah. You know, I don't know what that means. What do you mean blank screen with the client? I'm in there too. We're in a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, really. It, it, dealing with the world as it is, as it comes to you, I guess. Yes. Yes. We talked about other people's books. You have books. Tell us about your books. I, you know, I have one book and I say it's sort of apologetic. I I self-published Equine Connection and Polyvagal Principles that I wrote during COVID. It's basically just the beginning of a throwdown of the story of this work. It's not, it's not it yet. And I'm working on the it. I also have one, Save Kids, Smart Parents. It was a Simon & Schuster published book. It, it's, it was actually quite good, but it's a little bit hard to find. And then I also have the thing I'm really proud of is a paper with Deb Dana and a Dr. Davis on polyvagal in the courtroom, looking at about how polyvagal principles and high conflict divorce, how important it is that everybody, attorneys and judges all understand the importance of regulation. Mm-hmm. And then I have this one I wrote with Porges on appeasement, which is sub- published in the British Journal of Traumatology. So as a dyslexic who rambles a lot, I'm very proud of the academic papers, although I would rather go get two more crowns without Novocaine than continue to write the academic papers. But right now I'm working on another polyvagal paper. I mean, another polyvagal book. And I also have a crazy book that I'm thinking that I won't tell you what it is until it's done, but I'll give you a hint when we're not on podcast i've got one of those too which, gonna... yeah, yeah, which i've been saying i'm, I'm gonna finish next year for about the last 15 years probably more like 20 but i will finish it but all right well we'll trade and then we'll okay. check in with each other about it because okay good i like it okay and then no so finally how do people contact you through the polyvagal equine institute www.polyvagalequineinstitute.com office at polyvagal equine institute I think it's also important to know that J.C. Dugard, who was abducted at 11 and returned after, gosh, 18 years with two children. I originally met her when she was deposited, literally, in my program. She also wrote a really interesting and yet very activating book called The Stolen Life. And the second half of the book is very much about the type of equine work that we were doing at the time. She was, you know, people say, oh, my gosh, this was your client and now you're working. What happened after three years? She said, I do not want to go forward being known as the little girl that was abducted. Can you help me make my story mean something? So we went into consult for three months and worked it out and have gone forward to help create the Polyvagal Equine Institute so that people can have some of the same experience. So her book, A Stolen Life, is also wonderful. Margie also has a book called Notes from the Barn, which is really sweet. You'd really like it, Rupert, too. So, so Jason Trott, A Stolen Life, Margie McDonald, Notes, Notes from the Barn. Okay. Yeah. And Polyvagal, equi- Polyvagal Principles, Equine Connections, or Safe Kids, Smart Parents. Polyvagal Principles, Equine Connections, and Safe Kids, Smart Parents. Okay. They can go on Amazon and find these? Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay, listeners, you have your reading list. 
And one more time, give people the URL. They might've been driving. They might need to pull off and write it. Give us the URL. Give us your email. How can they contact you? com, and it's office at Institute. And if you want something to get directly to me, just say Rebecca or AKA Dr. B and I will get it. Super. All right. All right. All right. I can't wait to come check it out. Yeah. Good. I will be in California. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm there every, at least once a year, sometimes twice. So can I swing by? You better. You guys okay. both better. And maybe we can get Joy back out here. Would love that. Yeah, Joy. Joy yeah, for those of you who might have missed Joy O'Neill's podcast that she did with us, she runs Red Barn in Alabama. One of the great unsung heroes of the equine assisted world. Check her out. She uh, really is. You know, her. Rupert, after my house burned down, my grandmother was a children's author. And I'd only mentioned it once to Joy. She went on and found every one of my grandmother's books and sent them to me. Yeah. Within six weeks of my house burning down, she we call we all call her Mama Joy, and when you meet her, you understand. And she is, she and her daughter are crazy and crazy amazing. So they okay. are, they are, they are, they are. And you know, as as Joy, Joy shows up, she's from Alabama. She's very much a Southern. But blah, blah blah. Oh, I didn't realize that she had this whole punk rock background. And it's like, I love you forever, Joy. You know, it's just like yeah. Okay. Oh. Act- Ask her to talk about who her boyfriends were in high school too. It's okay. it's there's so many things about her that you'd be driving down the road and she'll say something and you'll go, What? So anyways. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, listen, thank you so, so much, Rebecca. This has been amazing. It's been informative, it's been educational, it's been inspirational. I look forward to more. If people have questions, would you come back on and maybe we can Absolutely. answer them? I would love to. I yeah. would absolutely love to. So That's my sneaky way of getting you for a round two. I know I'd love to. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.